Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Phil, thanks so much for joining us here. How should we think about these equity markets in 2022, given the, the strong performance we had in 2021? Well, Paul, first of all, to you and Taylor, Happy New Year. Thank you very Likewise. much for having me on again. Um, so good news and bad news. Uh, good news is that last year the stock market was up almost 30% on a total return basis. Uh, we've been up more than 100% since the bottom of the market last March. Earnings last year are probably up about 50%, 5-0% year-on-year. Um, that's not the kind of year we're looking for in calendar 22. Earnings maybe will be up 8 to 10% year-on-year. Uh, we think we've seen as much multiple expansion as we're going to get, and, and we do expect that you know the bias in terms of interest rates in the Fed is higher. Um, so I don't think we're getting a multiple expansion. We've got a 5,300 target on the S&P 500, mm. uh, our 4,800 call, of course, for last year. So that gives us you know, roughly a 10% move higher. Now, 10% is pretty good uh, you know, uh, in a normal year, but it's not you know, the 30% we saw last year or the you know, 100% we've seen over the last couple of years. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is we need to mute our expectations. A lot more volatility, in our view, in calendar 22. And that volatility, Phil, does it come from at least some of the surveys that Bloomberg has done? It is all about inflation, less so about COVID. How are you thinking about the volatility and the risks and where that stems from? Oh, Taylor, that's a great question. Um, you know, when you look at COVID, maybe we've got a somewhat out of consensus view that we're looking at the, the, you know, the cycles in South Africa, the cycles in the European Union and the UK, and the cycles here in the United States. And we've got a view that, that Omicron is going to peak here maybe you know, by the end of this month uh, and become much less a big deal uh, than it's been over the last couple of months. Now, that's not to say we don't know what the next variant is going to be. Is the next variant going to be more problematic than Omicron? I don't know. But as we're looking at the financial markets, we're, we are a lot more concerned about what's going on with inflation and more precisely what's going on with the Federal Reserve's likely response. Now, while a lot of folks were on vacation, uh, the government reported that the core personal consumption expenditure index, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation, rose 4.7% year-on-year basis in November. That, that, that's huge. And, and remember, the Fed's target is 2%. We're, we're you know, well above that. So the Fed, in our view, did the right thing in accelerating its tapering program. We think the taper is going to be done by the end of March. We're expecting three quarter-point rate hikes over the course of next year. But, but suppose inflation is an even bigger problem than we think it is. Does that mean maybe the Fed is going to shift from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening, shrinking its balance sheet you know, aggressively? Mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe instead of quarter-point rate hikes, 
maybe the Fed's thinking about 50 basis point rate hikes in order to sort of catch up from behind the curve. I, I don't know the answer to those questions, but, but that's part of the uncertainty and the volatility that, that potentially is in store for us over the course of calendar 22. All right. So given that backdrop, Phil, um, do I stick with the big growth names that have worked for me for more than a decade, the Apples, the Amazons of the world, or do I stick with that cyclical trade? But boy, it's been really good over the last uh, 18, 24 months, whether it's energy or banks. How do I think about that? So uh, in our view, you stick with that cyclical trade, the value trade. And, and to some degree, this is a function of valuation. That, that forward multiples on the S&P 500 right now are around you know, 20 times earnings, give or take, which is, which is high, but I'm not losing any sleep over it. But when you look at the growthier names, technology, et cetera, those PEs are up in the mid-30s. You look at the value names, uh, financials, energy, uh, discretionary, uh, materials, uh, industrials, multiples in, in, on, on those sectors are in the mid-teens, yet the pricing power and the outsized earnings gains, in our view, are going to come from those value categories. So as we look at where to invest, where do you put new money in calendar 22, I think there are three places we're focused on. Number one, domestic large cap value. and We just covered that. Mm -hmm. Number two, small cap, uh, particularly on a growth-adjusted basis. Those valuations are very cheap. Right. And then finally, international. International is extraordinarily cheap versus the domestic. Um, if we're right that Omicron is going to roll over here, you know, in let's call it the first quarter of the year, there's going to be a catch-up trade in international that's going to start yeah. at some point during the year. Yep. All right, Phil, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts as usual, uh, always giving us some cogent thoughts as we take a look at these markets here. Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes, you know what? They've got 600 billion assets under management, so they know a thing or two about these markets. So I've been saying to myself at least, and maybe even to the audience here, why isn't the 10-year yield higher? I mean, I got the Federal Reserve talking about accelerating, tapering, and talking about raising rates next year. And, you know, Ira Jersey from Bloomberg Intelligence said, just focus on the two-year. You are seeing that go up. The 10-year will follow. Well, maybe it is following a little bit here today, up about eight basis points. But let's bring in an expert who can really answer this question, Priya Misra, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities. So, Priya, we're seeing a move up in a 10-year today. This feels like what I should have been seeing all along. How, do, how are you thinking about this yield curve here as we enter 2022? Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. So, um, yes, I think a big puzzle for us last year was why the long end rallied. I mean, I can see why the front end should have moved the most as hikes were getting priced in. Um, but the long end, even a faster taper, was just rock solid and actually lower rates. And so today could be a little bit of catch up. I think also with the rise in Omicron, but hospitalization staying low, you know, I think there's a general uh, hope, perhaps, that the pandemic is moving to an endemic state, risk assets are doing well. So today might be more catch-up. We have a lot of data this week, and I'll be watching the ISM services data, particularly to see if there's any impact of Omicron on that, um, as well as, of course, we have payrolls and the minutes. And that's where I think another reason why the long end might sell off is if they talk about balance sheet uh, runoff. I think that they clearly discussed it in that December meeting, and we think the minutes will have more in terms of when do they start that. 
the, I think that's much more bearish for the long end of the curve. So we are looking for the 10-year to reach 2% by year end. You know, there's no clear catalyst today. I think it's just more a catch-up. Uh, well, what about the sort of the longer-term catalyst as well as you're thinking about inflation, Priya? Right. I, you know, with inflation, the issue is which part of the curve gets impacted depends really on the Fed reaction function. So far, it's been the front end that's been responding to inflation because, it, you know, the, the Fed was responding through sooner hikes. Um, but, but if it seems as if the Fed is more cautious, and that's why I would look at the growth side. If the growth momentum starts to slow down, perhaps due to Omicron or fiscal drag, we're very nervous about the, the expiration of the child tax credit and other impact on the consumer then I think the long end can start to respond to inflation because then you should get paid up more to take on inflation risk if you're buying the tenure. But in the near term, as the Fed hiking cycle is very much front and center, I think the front end is more inflation driven than the very long end. By background. And so I'm not really sure I'm getting all the nuances from this Federal Reserve, but it seems like the Federal Reserve is doing a very good job at telegraphing and messaging what they plan to do in 2022. Is that your take as well? Are you concerned that maybe they could make a mistake here in terms of maybe the pace or the rate at which they raise rates? Right. So I think the market is pricing in a risk of a policy mistake, because even though the start of the hiking cycle is well priced, at, you know, to your point, the Fed has telegraphed a hike this year and the market's now pricing in May of this year, first hike, three hikes this year. It's really the end point and the pace of hikes after this year that the market's really underpricing what the Fed is messaging. So either the market's calling the Fed's bluff that they won't be able to raise rates that much, or it's an idea of a policy mistake that they slow the economy down and therefore they will either have to cut rates or not be able to raise rates. So, you know, I think they've been able to telegraph the near term, but it's really how much are they going to raise rates? Um, how much are they going to hike next year and the year after? And this is where I think there is uncertainty, both from the economic outlook as well as the Fed reaction function. We're going to have new Fed governors, three new Fed governors most likely getting added to the voting members this year, and that could also shift the dynamic into next year. So that's where I think the market is has a disconnect with what the Fed is uh, communicating. When you think about some of the near-term policies, how much are you uh, thinking about a move in March, if March is a live meeting, or are we looking at a Federal Reserve with a very, very clear distinction between ending a taper and then a timeline before that we get to the rate hike? Sure. So before the Omicron surge, I was thinking March could be a live meeting because they had already communicated the end of tapering and they could turn around and hike right away because they have very clear um, you know, conditions that have to be met to hike. I would say with the Omicron surge and you know, we are seeing frictions in the travel industry, in leisure, I would argue service consumption is going to be a bit slow, at least to start the year off. I think the Fed, uh, or, or our view, is that that March meeting is not really live, that the Fed will want to retain optionality, flexibility, stress on uncertainty, and therefore just wait for the data after the Omicron spike is behind us in the U.S., which is probably only by the end of the first quarter for the country. So which is why we think it's more in the second quarter that they can evaluate how much did Omicron impact growth and whether their conditions to hike, which is both inflation and on the labor market, whether those are met. So that's why we're looking for the first hike only in June. Um, but I would say that it's really a function on of yep. how the economy slows down. 
All right, Priya, thank you so much uh, for joining us uh, yet again. Priya Misra, Managing Director and Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities, otherwise known as Toronto Dominion. Did you know that? I did th know that. You did that. know that? Okay, because they're, <laughs> they're shortening up these names, trying to get a little bit uh, cuter, I guess, but uh, TD Securities there, Priya Misra. Well, we've got markets at or near all-time highs. So when I was in my investment banking days, I would just... Taylor, pick up the phone and call my clients and say, hey, your stock's at an all-time high. Let's go issue some stock. How, how creative was that? How was that <laughs> is adding? Is that how you made the big bucks? Is that adding value or not? <laughs> you know, so, uh, but the question is, and a lot of those phone calls were made in 2021, mm -hmm. and uh, the question is, what do we do here in 2022? Um, let's bring in our next guest. He's got some thoughts here he's going to share with us. Uh, Greg Flasnick, uh, CEO of MZ North America. Greg, thanks so much for joining us here Again, a good, great, slash really lucrative year for IPO slash SPAC bankers in 2021. How about 2022? Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, 2021 was a record year for IPOs. And I think if you look back at the beginning of 21, you know, the start of COVID vaccines were rolling out, a global rebound of, of economies. We've seen a lot of liquidity accelerated by government stimulus. And, and all of this has resulted in, in quite a bit of optimism for the global IPO market um, with, with investor sentiment at its peak. Um, but I think if you look at, you know, next year, the year we're from now, I guess, uh, 2022, um, you know, I, I feel that that momentum should continue at least into the first quarter of 22. I think that the SPAC vehicle is, is um a, a great way for companies to go public. And, and I think it's something that's here to stay. It certainly doesn't have the kind of risk that investors perceived, you know, maybe 10 years ago. Um, and, and I think, you know, if you, if you look at the SPAC market in 21, there was a lot of this fad of celebrity SPAC sponsors, right? So I, I think you're going to see less of this um, and more from the serial SPAC sponsors, sponsors eventually. But in the near-term pullback from the serial SPAC sponsors, allowing what's already in the market, they're, they're waiting for time to, to source an executed transaction um, as we are seeing a prolonged de-SPAC process. So, um, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, it could be completed in as little as three months. It's now taking closer to six months on average. Um, um, but, but I think, you know, for IPO candidates, undoubtedly they're up against some higher market volatility and, mm. And I just think it's important to remain flexible with, with you know, companies' capital raising plans um, in the event an IPO timeline is, is delayed due to a shift in market conditions. But bottom line, I think high valuations and, and market liquidity are going to keep the IPO market hot as um, we work through 2022. And as Paul mentioned, you know, good for these companies taking advantage of some of these high valuations. But for investors, maybe not so much. I'm taking a look at our SPAC index and our IPO index. Both were down. 10. We have a SPAC index? We do. It is the IPOX SPAC index. Wow. Very cool. SPAC okay. index go on the terminal. Those were down last year, 10, 15% relative to the S&P, which is up 25, 27%. So how do investors start to perhaps maybe differentiate or start to be more discerning with what SPACs or what IPOs they should be in? Yeah, that's right. And I think there there was a, a time where, you know, we saw the, again, the, the, the investor sentiment, the rise of the retail investor, where, you know, in, in my business, I saw 
you know, people just basically buying anything that was an IPO or anything that was a SPAC. And certainly that isn't a winning strategy. So I think just, just having discipline in your investment criteria and deciding kind of what, you know, really what, you know, what is meaningful to you and what you think ultimately would work. But, um, you know, there is going to be a lot of noise. There's always going to be winners and losers. And I think just, um, especially as it relates to the retail investor, you know, typically we see the story work best where people kind of have some sort of, uh, I guess, relation to the company that's going public. Meaning, what does it do for me? Why can I relate to this? Hey, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, really appreciate it. Getting your thoughts here on the uh, new issue market, IPOs, SPACs, markets all-time high. I'd be making that phone call to my client saying, let's push some stock out the door. Greg Flosnick, CEO of MZ North America. Looking at Tesla today, the stock's up over 10%. It sounds like they're actually, or looks like, they're actually pretty good at making this making these cars it's not just a tech store anymore but let's bring in dan ives because he's been very bullish on tesla and tech and he's been very right dan ives managing director and senior equity analyst for wedbush securities also a, a product of happy valley uh dan thanks so much for joining us here so it turns out tesla knows how to make a lot of cars don't they and they know how to make them uh, despite the chip shortage yeah I, I think that paul i think that's the big thing i mean the chip shortage probably took 30, 35,000 cars off the quarter. So you start to add those, you're looking at something close to 340,000. And this was, it was a trophy case quarter for Tesla in terms of what we're seeing in demand. And a lot of it's China. I mean, we think China alone's worth about $500 per share to the story in terms of everything we're seeing going to 2022. Interesting. When we talk about this, what, where is Tesla relative to some of the other competitors? Because you've talked a lot about some of the other big tech companies coming in, maybe being able to compete. But who is a Tesla competitor at this point? Yeah, I mean, Taylor, it's a great question because the 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 competition now is starting to expand, not just from auto players, but even technology. We expect Apple to get into the EV game over the next few years. I think Amazon, Google, and others, because it's a $5 trillion green title but when you look at the core competitors for Tesla, it's really Ford, GM in the U.S., and then, of course, VW in Europe, and in China, you got Neo, Xping, and others. But it's important because you look at the scale that they have, it's unmatched. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that still is underappreciated by the street. Once you get Berlin and Austin on, they'll have capacity of over 2 million units going in 2022. Dan, how do you think Tesla wants to position itself from a marketing perspective? Once we have the VWs and the Fords and the GMs, you know, with a, a full array of EVs, how does Tesla want to position themselves in this marketplace? Yeah, I mean, they definitely were on the high end, as we saw with the SNX, but 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 the core linchpin to Tesla's growth is going to be in that forty to fifty k range with probably additional software on, on top of that. It's a cachet that they've built, remember, without any formal marketing, because Tesla's become synonymous with EVs. And a lot of that is, is related to Musk and everything that he, him and the team have built. And no doubt competition is going to significantly increase. But what's important today, I mean, EVs is still only 3% of automobiles in the world. We think that goes to 10% by 2025. And for Tesla, the big opportunity now is they can get cars into consumers' hands. 
that is ultimately the key, and it's something where the average consumer, when they're looking at EVs, they're looking, why should I not buy a Tesla? And I think that's something they put themselves into the same situation as Apple when it comes to iPhone. Are you talking about a U.S. consumer or increasingly a Chinese consumer? Well, the China is the linchpin. That's the key to the bull thesis. I mean, China, we think that will be about 40% plus of deliveries for Tesla in 2022. And that's why China is so key, because also the profitability on those vehicles. Now Tesla is a profitable store. They can have $30 earnings power by 2025. Wow, that is China-driven. And if it sounds familiar, because that company in Cupertino, what's been a key part of their growth? It's China for Apple. So you look at what Apple and Tesla, I mean, Musk is really taking a playbook out of Apple. Dan, I'm looking at the uh, Bloomberg terminal right now, the ANR function annual analyst recommendation. Of course, you have an outperform rating on the stock, and I see a $1,400 price target. What's the catalyst to get us from, you know, 1166 here to 1400 Well, I think the key catalyst is as we get into the earnings season over the next call three four weeks it's really must talk about chip shortage because if chip shortage is starting to moderate which we believe it is then all of a sudden street numbers you know they could go up two hundred thousand units you know for the year that means profitability could be up 30 40 percent relative to what the street's modeling that's a catalyst the second catalyst is around battery technology that's a big part of their moot i think improvements there specifically on cost side are significant to the tesla story I think those are some of the catalysts. We'll have some white knuckle periods like we always do. And there's always going to be some side circus shows. But if you look at the fundamentals, that's really what I think stood out when you look at what Tesla did in this Q4. Take us outside Tesla as well, other big tech, because you cover it all. What are you looking for to be one of the best performers or a better stock from a fundamental basis as we head into this year? Yeah, I mean, we could talk about Fed raising rates, risk off, valuation, till it blew in the face. But it comes down to the dynamic streets underestimating is growth. And a lot of that growth, I think, is in software and cybersecurity. You look at names like software besides just Microsoft, which you know, I think will be a $3 trillion market cap 2022. You know, I look at some of these names in terms of cybersecurity names like Zscale or Tenable, Powell out, though, among others. I think you're also going to have a lot more M&A within cloud cybersecurity. And that's why you, you can't lump them all into the same bucket. Work from home, e-commerce, you'll start to see some of the froth come off. Mm. When you look at cloud cybersecurity, 5G, and some of the core names like Apple, the spending is actually accelerating, not decelerating. And that's the important thing. Dan, you mentioned Cupertino, so i got to ask you for your, uh, your 2022 call for Apple. Look, I mean, for Apple, it's right now we're about 12 million demand outstrip and supply in units because of the shortage. That that only elongates the March and June growth that we'll see for Apple. I still think this is an iPhone cycle underestimated by the street. Could be 240, 250 million units for the year, and then I think they finally release Apple Glass by the summer. That could add 28 hours per share of the AR VR headset, and I think Apple's one where. It's all about monetization, and we think the services business alone is worth $1.5 trillion. That continues to be the re-rating. And like we've said, Paul, they hate, they hated a trillion, despised <laughs> a $2 trillion, and they're just screaming at $3 trillion. Look, haters will hate. It is what it is. That's what makes it hard. 
All right, Dan, uh, what we love about you, consistent and with great conviction on your calls. We appreciate that. We appreciate getting your time. Dan Ives, he's a managing director, senior equity analyst at Wedbush Securities, proud alumnus of the Penn State University. Uh, I wrote a lot of tuition checks to Penn Penn, Penn State University, so I have a particular affinity uh, for there. But Dan's been uh, just really good here on this Tesla story, uh, and it's really been amazing to watch. Just the the tech analysts get it. The auto analysts, by and large, have not historically, uh, but uh, really shown that they can make a lot of uh, cars there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.